As we continue in the rhythm of grace this morning by coming now to the Word of the Lord uh, to receive His wisdom, we return once again this week to Matthew's Gospel, but this time to chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, where we come for the first time, thought I'd send this out to you, point it out so you didn't miss it, in the entirety of the mustard seed campaign thus far, and we're five weeks into the topic of money, and I want to tell you in advance what Jesus is going to say to us today, because He's going to say three things. So number one, He's going to come to us today, Jesus, not Tom, is going to say, look, Here's what you're not to do with your money. And then immediately after that, he's going to say, all right, you got that? Okay, good. All right, so here's what you are to do with your money. And then immediately after that, he's going to say, now, let's just be honest. Let me tell you why it is that you don't do it. Or at least you don't do it the way that, man, when you hear what he's saying, we should. Because in points one and two, here's what you're not to do with your money. Oh, and here's what you are to do with your money. Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, who has given his life to save us. The greatest love ever is coming to us in love as a Savior who gives, not takes, who advantages, not disadvantages, and he's bringing to us the singular greatest investment opportunity Ever and ever is an enormously huge word, and typically we exaggerate when we use it. So, Tom, you don't ever mow the yard. I mowed it in 1999 a couple of times when we bought the house. You don't ever call. You don't ever come by. You don't ever say, okay, now listen, that's not true, all right? We use it in an exaggerated sense again and again and again. It's like always and never. We do the same thing with those words. Listen to what I'm going to say again because it is an appropriate use of this. Jesus is coming to me and he's coming to you and then telling us what not to do and then what to do with our money in this life, in this world in which we live. He is saying, guys, I am in love as your Savior, bringing to you the singularly greatest opportunity investment-wise Ever. I don't think there's any way to argue with that. However, it's an investment opportunity that you have to have the eyes of faith to see. It's an investment opportunity that means nothing apart from ears to hear it. It's an investment opportunity that is totally lost unless your heart says, this is Jesus and what he says is true. Therefore, I need to live that way by the power of his spirit in community with people. For them, for us, for that kind of heart, for those kind of eyes, for those kind of ears, man, this is the singularly greatest investment opportunity ever, 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 and it's a big word, and I own it. It's, it's the right use. So let's get to it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, not Tom, beginning in verse 19, right out of the gate, he says, here's what not to do with your money, so here we go. Do not, here we go, lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves and for that matter politicians and corrupt business people and fickle economies that are tied to our passions and our passions are like horrible. Steal it from you, take it from you. Break in and steal, he says, but instead, here's what you are to do with your money. You're to use it in this life while you can in such a way so as to what? Lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So let's just stop and appreciate that for a second because, again, greatest investment opportunity ever. What is Jesus saying? He's coming to us, again, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our friend, and he's saying, hey... I'm the guy that spans heaven and earth. I'm the heavenly man come down from heaven to earth. 
I'm the heavenly man come down to heaven to earth to suffer, die, rise again from the dead to save you from your sin, though you were undeserving. I have proven my faithfulness and love to you. I've gone back to heaven. I'm going to come back again, but I've left behind a word for you. I know all about the economy of heaven. I know all about the economy of earth. I understand the connection between the two. So here's the greatest investment opportunity ever. Here you go. You ready? I'm going to put it in a question. Why would you spend most of your time, energy, and effort in the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, let's call it 100 years that you have on this planet? Storing up for yourselves treasures in a place in which they are subject to corruption and loss, and then at the end of this little wisp of time called your life, which is all this is compared to eternity, you've got to leave it all 100% entirely behind. Why would you do that when instead, okay, well, you can spend your time and energy and effort in this little wisp of time called your life, storing up for yourselves treasures in a place where they are not subject to loss and corruption and where you can enjoy them for forever and ever and ever and ever. And you get it? It's an infinite number of evers. We're not talking about millions of years. We're not talking about billions of years. We're not talking about trillions of years, trillions upon trillions. Yeah, you know what? You're just getting going. An endless number of years. Jesus is coming and he's going, look, I'm not trying to take from you. I give. That's who I am. I don't need from you. I'm the infinitely wealthy one. That's my posture. But from that posture for your own good, I'm letting you know about something you'll be happy about if you'll take it up in faith. And that is that, man, you have the opportunity to do this. And I think what Jesus is saying through this passage is, why would you not do this? Or really, because I think that all of us could do more of it. I think he's going, hey, well, why, why do you not do this? That, it honestly, it doesn't make any sense. So let's hear it again. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's what you're not to do with your money. But instead, he says, use your money in such a way so as to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So it's safe and parenthetically, where you can then also enjoy it for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, as opposed to this little wisp of life that is now, to which he then adds, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's what Jesus really wants from every single one of us, and it's not our money. There is not a cash crisis in heaven right now. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are not gathering together going, hey, I don't think we're going to make our rent unless Tom ties this month. And he wants your heart. It's just as plain as the sun in the sky. But here's what else is as plain as the sun in the sky. And Jesus speaks to it very directly. Your heart follows where your treasure goes. So if you want to know where your heart is, look at where it's going. So here's what Jesus does, because he wants your heart and it follows where your treasure goes. He comes to us as a community of faith and he says, look, here's the deal. I'm coming to you with the greatest investment opportunity ever. And I'm not going to suggest that you participate in it. I'm going to command you to do it because this, that's what this is. This is not Jesus coming to me and coming to you and going, hey, listen, you know, if you were really smart, well, then here's what you would not do and do. No, he's coming to us in grace and he's saying, look, I'm going to command you to do this because I know that it's good for you. And even if you can't see that it's good for you, I'm going to command you to do this. And every parent can relate to that. 
Every parent has had to force their screaming child to take some kind of nasty medicine that they knew would bring healing. There's a greater wisdom at play. He's calling us to trust in His wisdom. So now that we know it's a command, let me say it again. The words of Christ are these, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, use your money in such a way so as to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal and where you can then also enjoy them for forever and ever and ever and ever. So that's what you are to do. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and your heart is what God's after. So where are we thus far in the three points that I've outlined? Well, point number one, what we're not to do, got that. Point number two, what we are to do, I think we got that. So now he enters into this conversation then, beginning in verse 22, where he says, all right, well, here's why you don't do it. Or at least not do it the way that, that you could. You don't lay hold of this opportunity as greatly as you could do. Here's why. He continues, and he gives us this odd little discourse. And if you did your personal worship this week, you probably thought, why is this in here? So hopefully this will help make sense. He says the eye. Now, what is the eye? Well, relative to the rest of your body, the eye is the object of sight, is it not? So like if you wake up tomorrow morning and your eyes say, you know what, we're taking the day off. Your whole body is taking the day off, is it not? I mean, at best, you're going to be stumbling around in the darkness, in the darkness of blindness. What does the eye do? It lets in light and thus gives sight, not just to the eyes, but to every part of you. And therefore, it enables you to navigate and make good decisions about where you go, about where you step. You avoid the manhole because you see that it's open. You walk safely on the sidewalk. What a great opportunity to stay out of the traffic. All right, that's what he's talking about. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body and that it lets the light in and enables you to see and navigate the rest of the body accordingly. So then he says, if your eye is healthy, which is to say, if you see clearly with your eye, then your whole body will be full of light. Your whole body will be able to safely navigate to make good decisions. That's the idea. But if your eye is bad, if you're blind, well, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Just close your eyes and look for light. You can't see it. But then here's the worst condition of all. Jesus says, if then the light that is in you is darkness. In other words, he's saying, if you think that you see clearly, but in fact, unbeknownst to you, you're blind. Oh, he says, that's the worst condition of all. He says, then how great is the darkness? Why? Because at least if you know you're blind, you know, you can take special precautions. You can get a seeing eye dog. You can get one of the sticks that, that people use. It's very helpful. You can feel your way around knowing that in your blindness, you're subject to holes and manholes and all kinds of other perils of life. You can accommodate the disability and learn to navigate accordingly. But if you think that you see perfectly, but in fact, you're blind, you just charge straight ahead and fall right in the hole. You make bad decisions when you think you see but in fact, you're blind, and you say, all right, well, interesting, but what does this have to do with money? Because that's what Jesus was talking about just before he went into this odd little discourse about the eye and whatnot. And as you now look at the next verse, verse 24, you can see that he's still talking about money. 
He says here, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, to which he then adds. And here he reveals who the two masters that are competing are. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Now think about that for a minute, because that's absolutely necessarily the case. Why? Because if what you truly treasure is earthly treasure, what is God when it comes to your earthly treasure? Because God comes and asks you for some of it. God comes and says, you shall tithe. God comes and says, hey, you know what? You need to hold it with an open hand. God comes and says, you know what? I'd like you to pour it in here. I'd like you to help the poor over here. I'd like you to be a part of this over here. Well, if he's not your God and this other stuff is, then God is a threat to your real God. They're competing. He says, look, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, he might not say it that way, but he'll behave in such a way as to make that clear. You cannot serve both God and money. And so again, you know, what is all this talk about the eye and light and darkness? And I think that I see, but I don't. And that's really perilous. And what does that have to do with money? I think he's coming to us in the context, obviously, of a long conversation on money and possessions. And he's saying, listen, oftentimes when it comes to this topic, you think that you see yourself clearly, but you don't. It's an area of blindness. And because you don't see yourself clearly, it's a blind spot. By definition, a blind spot is something you're not aware exists, isn't it? Because you don't see yourself clearly, man, you are missing out on the singularly greatest investment opportunity ever, ever, ever offered. Or to put it differently, he's coming to us with the sin of materialism, and here's how I've defined that. It's treasuring earthly treasure above the true treasure that is Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom in this world. He's coming to us with the sin of materialism, and he's saying, I need to tell you something. It's not like other sins. And if you just begin to think it through, you know that's the case. I mean, if you're committing adultery, you're not surprised by it. What? You're not my wife. You know, you know that. That's not news to you. You don't wake up one day in jail and go, how did I get here? Well, you know, you stole something from the store. You're kidding me. Do we have a video of this? I didn't mean to do that when I put the gun in the guy's face. You know that you're stealing. If you're lying to someone, you know that you're lying to them and you're carefully recording the false narrative in your mind just in case you have to, you know, call it up out of the depths of your mind because when you lie a lot, you have to have a great memory so you don't get caught. Almost no one ever looks at themselves and says, you know what my problem is, is that I'm greedy. It's that I have an insatiable desire for more. It's that I find my security and my significance in this stuff right here. And in fact, this is my God and I orient the entirety of my life around it. Doesn't happen. The greedy person is always the other person, and it's always some other person who has more than you, which also speaks to the blindness, does it not? Because you could be the most impoverished person in this room and the greediest at the same time, the most covetous. You can be the wealthiest person in this room and have realized the fallacies of wealth, that it doesn't bring you the security, that it doesn't bring you the significance, that it doesn't bring you the satisfaction that you thought it would at every level you've attained. So Jesus is talking about the love of money, and he's saying that it blinds us. And I I think, first of all, he's saying that it blinds us to our own love for money. 
which is why we never ask the question, do I really need this? We, we don't live in the land of need. We're Americans, Jack. We live in the land of want, and everything plays on our want. Do you know what the Bible does? This is crazy. It comes to us with our needs and says, that's all you need, and you should be happy with that. Be contented. This life is short. Take advantage of that investment opportunity. Jesus isn't coming to take. He's coming to give. How is he a taker? What does he need from us? It's why that I have never heard about an accountability group that meets around this issue. I've heard about accountability groups and have been a part of them that meet around all kinds of other issues. But never have I heard of a group of guys or women coming together and saying, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put our finances on the table. Just be totally transparent with each other because Jesus comes to us and says, this is unlike anything else in that we tend to be blind in this area of our lives. And so I'm asking you to help me see my blind spots. Where am I missing it? Because I'm all about that eternal investment thing. I think that's actually true. And if it is true, it is self-evident that it'd be absolutely nuts not to get in on it. Irrational, actually. So the love of money blinds us, first of all, to our own love for money. Then secondly, it blinds us to what we already have and ought to be satisfied and contented with in, in many cases. And then thirdly, the love of money blinds us to the needs of other people because those other people with their needs become a rival. They become a threat to our true God. So God is a threat and his kingdom is a threat and other people with needs are a threat. And and here's what you do when when that's the case. You don't want to see them. You, You blind yourself to the needs of the people around you both inside your community of faith and all over the city because it's like, good grief, man, you know. Oh, next thing you know, I've got to help that there and then I've got to be a part of this and a, this. And, a, and my, my wants have overtaken all of my discretionary income and because I've let that happen, I've got no space for all this other stuff. I'm storing up for myself treasures then where? Because it's not in heaven. It's on earth, and I'm blind to it because everyone around me is doing exactly the same thing and calling it good. It's a fact. So Jesus calls us to see the needs of his kingdom. Jesus calls us to see the needs of the poor, of the hungry, of the disadvantaged. He calls us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And now, as he continues this exact same conversation, he enables us to do this by not promising to meet our wants. We've got to run away from that. But by promising to meet our needs. That's what he does. So he says, therefore, I tell you, this is verse 25, do not be anxious about what? About your life. He doesn't say don't be anxious about anything. And in fact, I think he would say you need to be a lot more anxious about my kingdom and about the needs of other people than you are. 
the advancement of the kingdom, yeah, be anxious about that. Just don't be anxious about anything else. So he doesn't say don't be anxious about anything. And if you know Paul's writings in Philippians 4, you might now be thinking, yeah, but Paul says do not be anxious about anything. So Tom, what do you do with that? Well, he certainly does not mean do not be anxious about the advancement of God's kingdom. And I know that for a fact because in 2 Corinthians 11, also written by Paul, after laying out this incredibly long laundry list of things that he suffered for the advancement of the kingdom, he says this in verse 28. He says, and apart from all of these other things that I've just listed for you, that I've suffered for God's kingdom to advance it, there is the what? The daily pressure on me of my, uh uh-oh, anxiety for what? For myself and my own personal needs? No. Paul says, listen, I have learned in whatever condition I'm in to be, do you know the next word? Content. In plenty and in want, I'm contented. What is he anxious about? Because I think it's a good thing for us to be anxious about it. He's anxious about the advancement of the cause of Christ. He says, of my anxiety for all the churches. We're to be anxious about that. We're to invest in that and in every sense. In every sense. And so again, to free us to do that, calling us to be content with our needs being met. He says again in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, meaning about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. For it is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. He's saying God has given you a body. He'll sustain it. He'll clothe it. And he can be trusted. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus continues. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't do the kinds of things that we do to generate income. We've got a big advantage on them, like we're out there working. They don't even do that. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious about your own needs and your own life, as opposed to about the kingdom, can add a single hour to his span of life? And in fact, studies seem to indicate quite the opposite, do they not? And so then why, Jesus asks, are you anxious about clothing? Why indeed? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. There's no effort involved in the production of their clothing, if you will. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, it's, it's, it's raked up in its dead state and just burned to be, to be rid of it. There it is. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Eyes of faith. Ears of faith. Faith that says this is Jesus' words and therefore it's true. All right, he continues, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, meaning in this context, for people who are not believers in God, who do not specifically have God as their heavenly Father. Okay, he says, look, those guys seek after all of these things, and why would they not? There's no security outside of of that then. There's no significance outside of that then. There is no hereafter. (laughs) There is no next life from that mindset. He's saying when you live like that, you live like a practical atheist. He's saying don't do that. 
The Gentiles seek after all of these things, and you, however, have a heavenly Father, and your heavenly Father, by the way, already knows that you need all of these things, and so then what does that free you to do? Because he tells us right here, it's, it's simple. It frees us to seek first, meaning as a matter of first priority, above and before everything else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and in every area of our lives. But he's talking specifically about finances, and All of these other material things will be added to you. Therefore, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You don't need to borrow ahead on your anxieties. They'll be there waiting for you. Haven't you learned that? Sufficient for the day, he says, is its own trouble. How wise is that? It's brilliant. So that's what we're not to do with our money, store up our treasures here. It's what we are to do with our money, use it in such a way as to store up for ourselves treasures there in heaven. And those are at least some of the reasons why we struggle to do that. We're blind to the fact that we've been overwhelmed and overtaken. We've labeled wants as needs and eaten up all our discretionary income and we've got no space. We don't see ourselves clearly in regard to this issue. And then secondly, we've learned to trust in these things as opposed to the Lord to secure us. To make us to be important. And that's what prevents us from taking full advantage of the singularly greatest investment opportunity ever. And ever is a big word, but it's an appropriate use of it in this context. So I want to ask you, what, what are you doing with your wealth? Like, where are you storing it up? Is it here or is it there? And if it's here, why? Because this life, man, is nothing compared to there. So I brought a rope with me today. You've probably been wondering what in the world's up with the rope. But I want to illustrate this for you, okay? I want you to imagine... Oh, now it's going to get all coiled up on me. I want you to imagine that this rope is your eternal existence. It's actually a 100-foot rope, okay? So it has its limitations. It ends at 100 feet. But imagine that it never ends. And the little red piece on the end, maybe it's three inches long, taped off. That's the part of your existence that you're living in right now. Got it? So here's your life, and then here's the rest of it. That's my point. Okay, here's what kills me, and it kills me about me, not just everybody else. What kills me is that we live this life, our whole existence, as though it's going to end at the end of this tape. And incidentally, it is going to end at the end of the tape. And I don't know exactly when that's going to happen for me, and I don't know exactly when that's going to happen for you. I just know that the mortality rate's 100% last time I checked, so none of us are going to avoid the fact that the red piece of tape ends at some point, and then what? Then what? Oh, good grief, how long is this? (laughs) Think about it. It's getting all messed up. How long is that? Holy cow. So here's what we do. We live as though the tape never ends. That's it. 
And we work and we work and we work and we save and we save and we save and we store and we store and we store and we blind ourselves to other people's needs and God and his kingdom and all of these things so that maybe we can do some awesome stuff in about the last half of an inch of the red piece of tape. Maybe. Because we're planning for 90, Jack. But, you know, I've watched friends die in their 50s, 40s, 30s. Buried a 13-year-old. That's the sober truth. And the tape goes quick. Like one minute you're 18 and the next minute you're 50. Just trust me on that one. (laughs) It's bizarre. I remember interviewing my grandparents when they were in their 80s before they died. And um, I hadn't planned to talk about this. Uh, And we put a tape recorder in the middle of the room and just replayed their life with them hour by hour, just recounting from when they were kids. And we got somewhere toward the end of it. My grandfather goes, I don't know where it all went. He said, Tom, he goes, I wake up, I look in the mirror and I think, who is that old man? (laughs) Who is that old man? Well, that will not be long and it will be me. And it will be you. Unless you're a woman, in which case it'll be who is that old woman. So just going with that. (laughs) We live for this. Like it's all there is. And Jesus is coming to us and going, listen, I don't come to take from you. (laughs) Good grief, I've given my life for you. What else do I have to do? Here's the deal. Why would you spend the overwhelming majority of your time, energy, and effort in the little tiny wisp of life that is illustrated by this little bit of red tape? Storing up treasures for yourself in a place that are corrupted, that are subject to to being lost, and that you leave behind entirely, when instead you could spend that little dinky, minuscule piece of your existence storing up for yourself treasures in a place where you cannot lose them, they will not be corrupted, and where you have them for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, good grief, and ever, really, we're just getting going, and ever, I'm waiting for the rope to end, and ever, it's not quite over yet, and ever, and ever, and ever, have you gotten the point yet? Because I'm feeling a little awkward about it at this point, and ever, and ever, and it's getting weird for me, I'm not going to lie, and ever, and ever, and ever, and that's just a hundred feet of rope, and ever. The end of your hundred feet of rope it will have not even begun. Why are you doing that? And you say, well, Tom, I know where you're going with this. I'm glad because I'm trying to be about as subtle as a hammer. (laughs) What you're going to say next is, because we're in this mustard seed campaign, is that, you know what? I need to invest in the mustard seed campaign, but here's the problem that I have. I mean, apart from no discretionary space, which maybe is an issue that ought to be dealt with. Maybe, something to think about. But here's the problem that I have. If I, you know, do something, give whatever to this thing, you know, and this is an opportunity for me to invest in this forever, I get that. But that might affect what I do in the little half inch left of my red piece of tape, assuming that I get the half inch. Yes, it might. What about forever and ever? Do I need to do this again and ever and ever? Oh my goodness, it wearies me and ever. My shoulder is getting sore and ever and 
It might, and Jesus says that it will affect your forever, however. So does he tell the truth? Because if he does, we're crazy to not go all in on that. So last week, we looked at the founding of our church, and I had fun with it. I don't know if you guys did or not, but it was awesome. I just had a great time going through all the pictures with these guys and putting that message together. And we noticed a pattern. So here's what we noticed. These amazing people of faith founded the church, and then they bought the piece of land across the street, and then they raised money, and they built the first sanctuary, which is still our school gym. We still use it anyway. They built a platform from which they launched ministry into the city, into the world. And then after that, they expanded the platform by building the Sunday school wing just one story. And then after that, they expanded the platform by buying this piece of property that we're on presently. And then after that, they expanded the platform by putting a second story on the Sunday school wing. And then after that, they built the place where we are right now. Bit by bit, they expanded the platform and launched ministry, and expanded the platform and launched ministry, and expanded the platform and launched ministry, and expanded the platform and launched ministry. What is an investment in the platform? It's an investment in ministry. It's a thing, as Matt's been saying, from which you launch things. So that's our distant past. Wonderful. But I want to give you an example from our more recent past. But it's the same idea. So about 14 years ago, we had a different, another capital stewardship campaign. We called it Imagine 1000. We said, could you imagine if we had, like, if we added up everybody in our school and everybody in our youth program and everybody who comes to Rio on a Sunday, like throughout the course of a week, we could be ministering to 1,000 people. We've long since, by the way, run past that number. But we imagined that. We said, all right, we need to get some things. So we raised some money. We paid some debt. But what else did we do? We bought this piece of land right behind us just to the east of the church where this little house is. And I said at the time, look, we don't know exactly what we're going to use this for. We just know we need to get it. It squares off our property. We're going to get it rezoned, which incidentally we did. And maybe someday we'll develop it. That's where we want to put the Ingram Center. And in between then and now, Trees of Hope, a sexual abuse prevention and recovery ministry founded by one of our members, was launched out of that house. Our children and family ministries have been using that house for years now as their offices, all kinds of meetings, all kinds of stuff has been launched out of that house. But we also said we want to create a youth facility, and we spent a ton of money, and many of our opinions, including me, on our youth facility. I remember looking at the the price tag and going, whoa. And I would spend that 10 times over again today based upon the ministry that has gone out of that place. Absolutely unbelievable messages of transformation that God has created and he used a facility as a part of the creation of those stories. In our student ministries, in our women's ministries, in our men's ministries, in our dad's ministries, in our mom's ministries, in our school ministries. We've got parachurch ministries all over the city who have been to the attic and they're like, hey, can we use that? And we told you it was used 518 times in one calendar year. And that's just what was on the calendar. Think about that. Platform for what? Ministry. Not even that many days in a year. It's crazy. But I want you to think about the attic. And I want you to hear the voice of Carter Brown talking about it. Carter came to this church with his family many years ago. He was, I think, a junior in high school at the time. Became involved in our youth ministry. Then became an intern in our youth ministry 
with Rob Pacienza at the head. He then took over from Rob as the director of our student ministries, served amazingly, incredibly well uh, in that position. He then handed that off, and, and then he became an ordained pastor on our staff. He founded the Collage, the ministry to 20s and 30s here at Rio. It's gone amazingly well, and they've used the attic, incidentally, quite a bit. It's that kind of a place. That's what these places are for. That's the whole idea. And now, today, in a few minutes, we will commission Carter and his precious wife, Jessica, to go off and plant a church on Brickell Avenue in downtown Miami. It's what we'll do in a minute. Man, that's the way to lose people. But listen to the story of Carter. Think about the attic. He led us into Haiti, to Mission of Hope, all kinds of cool things. And then I'll come back up for a minute. Well, it is an odd moment indeed when a man publicly pleads with you to agree that his hair is beautiful. Uh, I got nothing. That's it. I, I don't know what to do with that. Maybe it'll strike me later what I could have said. But I want you to get mo- used to moments like this. Okay? If this life is all that we have, we don't send people away. We don't send money away. We don't take key, amazing young people like Carter and Jessica and say, yeah, why don't you guys? No, we're like, no, 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 no. This is all we got, man. We have you now. This is it. We're going to build the biggest, baddest, greatest place for us because when we die, that's it. But it's not all that we have. And here's what that lets us do. It lets us take people that are precious to us and resources and go, okay, I got eternity with these people. I'm pointing over there. Are you over there? Where are you? Is he back there? You're over here. Oh, there you are. It's good. I thought, good grief, he's not here. Now we're going to commission him. (laughs) That would have been weird. Hold them with an open hand. We recover them for all of eternity in Christ. And man, that's a lot longer than the little three-inch piece of tape. So it is my honor and privilege to invite uh, Carter and Jessica to come on up. And they're going to stand right here. And I want our elders, active, inactive, come on up. Yeah, we want to lay hands on these guys and, uh, and pray for these guys and ask for God's blessing to continue to be on them. Um, so let's do that. Father, we thank you for this man and for this woman, um, precious people that you have raised up, Lord, for your glory, uh, and schooled and taught and uh, grown before our eyes and in our midst. Uh, it is a privilege to have been blessed by their ministry seeing the way that they have used their gifts, the way that they have contributed to this precious place, and Lord, the way that you have prepared them and given them a heart for your gospel and for your people in a not very far place away called Miami. And so, Lord, we send them out with our blessing, but we pray, Lord, that we send them out with your blessing and trust that, in fact, that is exactly what will happen. We pray that the same Spirit who has called them to yourself, who has gifted them powerfully, and mightily will inhabit them, will walk close with them, will give them wisdom and power and discernment and everything that they need, Lord, your presence in the doing of a difficult thing 
For your great glory, we pray, God, that you will enable them and many others to pour themselves out in this lifetime as though this lifetime is not the only one there is, but in fact, in light of the confidence that we have, that there's a much longer life coming, purchased and paid for by you and by your Son. Thank you for the joy of that, the confidence of that, the security of that, and the purpose in that. Go with these guys, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.